So turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to open the Gospel of John uh, this morning. Amazing. It's an amazing book. We're going to be here a while, quite a few chapters, but, uh, but it's, it's really amazing. And I hope to hope to be able to kind of frame, frame the study of John uh, in a way that, that is that is faithful to what, what he intends. And uh, as Chris was mentioning, the, um, the way that, that the Old Testament provides the, the underlying storyline of, of the Gospel of John uh, will be, I think, clearly seen here, if I can, if I can present it well. Uh, you'll clearly see what, how, especially the, the Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3 creation story informs the, uh, the beginning, but actually the whole Gospel of John. So uh, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we, we thank you for this time. We, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it uh, changes us, transforms us. It transforms us mostly by the renewing of our minds and uh, then allows us to gain wisdom, uh, to uh, gain a knowledge of your will, to gain a calling, and uh, Father, we just pray that uh, you would do that and more today as you work in our midst. We pray your spirit will be among us and, and do a great work today, and uh, we just thank you for for your word and, and uh, your means to us. We, we pray you would just uh, pray your blessings today in Jesus' name. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things through him came about, and apart from him, not one thing came about which has come about. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light in the darkness shines, and the darkness does not overcome it. The book of John, as you know, is different than the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is remarkably different, though in many ways its teaching, teachings overlap with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those Gospels we call the Synoptic Gospels, but John stands out as the one who is one that is different. Rather than, and this is mostly why it is different, rather than having many shorter episodes of interaction between Jesus and others, John will often recount lengthier episodes within his book. Uh, lengthier conversations between himself and his uh, either his his followers, his crowds, uh, or his enemies, as he often does, and in a way that that makes the audience draw a conclusion: Who is this man? Who is this man? Is he the Son of God, or is he not? He will draw upon a deep knowledge of the Scriptures, and the Scriptures for him are not what we have. There, the Old Testament, the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures that we call the Old Testament. As we saw when we were looking through the book of Mark, the gospel writers in general will often allude to a passage or an extended section of scripture without actually quoting it. John is a master of this. They expect their readers to pick up on the illusion, and therefore they don't go on to explain themselves and the illusions. What this system allows them to do is to create a sub-story, a 
sub-narrative, a deeper meaning, if you will, a meaning by which the surface meaning is then interpreted. Let me illustrate with this passage. Consider the first three words of this book. What are they? In the beginning. Now this illusion is not difficult to detect, but we often just go right by it. We read it and don't consider what it means. What text is he alluding to? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, you will find the exact same words, N-R-K, N-R-K, in the beginning. And he intends for us to go back there and consider what he's about to tell us in light of Genesis 1, especially 1, but 1 through 3. We can all discern that he is alluding to Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What is he doing with this? Detecting these allusions to other scriptures is extremely important for determining the actual meaning of our Bibles, especially the Gospels. We've saw, we saw in Mark that he does, Mark does the same thing. What this means in actual practice is that we must become careful and sensitive readers of our Bibles so that we may be better able to sense the underlying illusion or sub-narrative that is at work within the story. Because that, I submit, is the Word of God. That is the Word of God itself. This, this meaning that is often down below the surface, that's informing the surface meaning, that is what John wants us to get. So that if we miss these illusions, we have missed out on much of the claims of the gospel writers about Jesus. And the way, and this is very important, the way that he is the culmination of the scriptures and of all history. This is the way. These illusions are the way that uh, is the way that these, these gospel writers will make claims about who Jesus is in relation to the scriptures. And if we miss them, we miss the main thrust of the passage. Through the use of illusion, John will make claims about Jesus to us as readers, but also to the characters within the story. Like something like this, we'll see in chapter four, he's talking to the woman at the well, and they begin talking about Jacob. Jacob gave us this well, right? And then Jesus will say, one greater than Jacob is here. That's basically what he's alluding to. But he's, he's referring to this underlying story that is informing the present narrative. You think the temple is great? He says at the end of chapter one and at the beginning of chapter two, Jesus as the new temple is greater. You think that creation will simply go on as it always has? No, Jesus is greater, and he is bringing about new creation. And this new creation begins when he starts redeeming lives. Eternal life, that life that characterizes the resurrection, the time when all things will be recreated brand new. Eternal life can now be had in the present by believing in Jesus. We're going to see this more as we, as we proceed. The body of the Messiah, the Christ, both literally Jesus's body and then also us as the body of Christ is where new creation begins. This is what this book is about. 
And this is why he alludes to Genesis 1-1 at the very beginning. Once his work is accomplished, and we'll see later on when we get to the section on, I have come to do the work of God and to, and to finish it, we will see that he is alluding to the work of new creation. He has come to recreate the lives of everyone and of this world. Once his work is accomplished, the work then begins in us through the transformation of our lives in, in uh, your life and my life by the very word of God that has become flesh. The word became flesh, as John will say, and this will make all the difference. Now, you may be beginning to sense the illusion, uh, the, the connection between these illusions uh, in, in John 1.1. And then also in Genesis 1-1, let's look, let's look closer at what he's doing. Unlike Mark, who offers an account of the good news about Jesus by stating it explicitly, John opens his account by a framing narrative that seeks Jesus and his words and actions within the frame of the ongoing story of the creator God's plan for the world. Literally, the whole world. Let me say that again. John opens his account about Jesus, by a, a story, a, a framing narrative that seeks Jesus and his words and actions within the frame of the ongoing story of the creator God's plan for the world, the whole world. God's plan, not just for humans. And this is very important to see. This is why John 3.16 has, has often been the subject of debate among scholars. God so loved what? The world. Right? So we think, well, it just means people. No, it doesn't. So seen within the frame of Genesis 1-1, he's recreating humans so that he can then recreate the world, as we saw in Romans 8. This is what's going on there. It's God's plan, not just for humans, but for the whole cosmos. What seems to many of us as an odd coincidence, oh, John opens his gospel with the same words as Genesis 1-1, in fact becomes thematic for the whole book. When he opens with, in the beginning was the word, he is saying that with the arrival of Jesus, God is recreating the world. Jesus is God's means of new creation because he is the new man. He's the new humanity, the new Adam, if you will, from whose side, later on we'll see, chapter 19, from whose side his bride, the church, will be birthed, will be born. He is the new man. He is the new Adam. We will see that this is why the most well-known verse in the Bible says what it says. For God so, that is, in this way, loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's why it says so, because God is not just interested in humans. He is but he is interested in remaking and recreating his whole world. He created it, and he will not leave it to ruin. This is not simply a statement about humans gaining life after death, what we read in, in chapter uh, 3.16. Might not perish, but have everlasting life. This is not simply a statement about humans gaining life after death. Rather, it is a statement about the love of the creator for the world and his plan to redeem it through his son. And this new creation takes place as God forms a new humanity from you and me 
from all those who believe in Jesus. God created this world and he will not forsake it. Rather, he will remake it. He will recreate it. And the way he will do it is through Jesus's death and resurrection and through the transformation and the witness of Jesus's followers. This is the claim. Do we believe it? Do we believe that new creation has begun in Jesus and then in us? Let's look more at the details. The text says that one through whom that one through whom God will recreate the world is the one through whom he created the world in the beginning, the divine word. Verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What is this all about? Primarily this, the word existed in the beginning, co-eternal with God and was God's agent in creation. You might call him wisdom. But Proverbs 8 tells us that wisdom was there with God in the beginning, doing this very thing. Proverbs 8.20. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. The Lord possessed me, verse 22, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from everlasting I was established from the beginning. From the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed. When he set for the sea its boundary so that the water should not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Here wisdom is personified and is personal. This is not the only place. Listen to the Jewish Targum, Targum Neophyte of Genesis 1, which does the same thing with wisdom, only they're translating Genesis 1, 1. From the beginning, it says, by wisdom, the Son of the Lord fashioned the heavens and the earth, and the land was without shape and empty, empty of humans and cattle, and empty of all the working of sprouting things and trees, and darkness spread over the face of the deep. And the spirit of mercy from before the Lord was blowing over the face of the waters. And then verse three. And the word of the Lord said, let there be light. Notice what happens here in the Targum, Targum Neophyte. It changes what, what is said in the Hebrew. It interprets what's happening at creation as not just the Lord creating, but his word. What's called in Aramaic, the memory. The word is actually doing the creating work that the Lord himself is doing in the Hebrew version. This is how they're interpreting it. And this is how they're seeing it in the first century. It was not uncommon in the first century and before that to personify the word of the Lord, to view the word as a distinct yet inseparable part of God himself. And John does this, does this too, only more so. 
He personalizes the word, even going beyond Proverbs. The divine word that is wisdom becomes flesh. In Jewish thought, this wisdom or word became Torah. So much so that some were even saying that Torah was the means by which God created the world. Now, this is absurd, but it was a way to elevate Torah to the place of divine instruction. Now, John repeats the claim about Jesus being with God in the beginning to ensure that we get this connection with wisdom. In the beginning, I was there with God as a master workman, he says in the word. He has told us that the one who was with God in the beginning is called the word. But through the repetition of this phrase, with God in the beginning, he makes the association between the word and wisdom. And we heard the same association in Targum Neophyte. The word or wisdom was the means by which God created the world. From the beginning, it says, by wisdom, the son of the Lord fashioned. And then when it begins, when he begins creating, he does it by the memory, by the word. The word said, let there be light. And he is the means by which God will renew all of creation. This one that was in the beginning will be the one who renews all of creation. This one was in the beginning with God, verse 2. Just to be clear about his role in creation, he claims the following. A role reserved for God only through wisdom in Proverbs 8. All things through him came about and apart from him, not one thing came about which has come about. Next, he is going to pivot to a topic that he will continue to draw upon throughout the rest of the book. And to truly understand the rest of the book and Jesus's claims about himself and what he has come to give, we must define this one term before moving on. I refer to the word life in verses four and five. This is often, these two verses are often kind of vague and it becomes quite difficult to define what he means by life. So much so that we often simply think, oh, it just means that we're gonna live forever somewhere, call it heaven, but that's basically it. But there's so much more to it. Verses four and five. In him was life, and the life that was in him was the light of men, of men or mankind, and the light in the darkness shines, and the darkness did not overcome it. The word life in the book of John, but even in the rest of the Bible, is a term that is somewhat vague. Part of the difficulty, perhaps most of that difficulty, lies in the fact that we do not have first century worldview. And in particular, we don't have a Jewish eschatology, that word that I use quite often, but it's very important for understanding John. If you don't understand Jewish eschatology, you will not understand the Gospel of John. It's a view of things, think of it this way. Eschatology is basically a view of where things are now and where things are going in the future. Eschatology, as you will recall from my attempted, uh, repeated attempts to define it, literally means the study of the end or end times. But that is not how I'm going to use it. I don't have in mind the final seven years of history, great tribulation, rapture, any of that. 
which is commonly in view when people use this term. What I mean is, where are we today? That is, in Jesus's day, where were they? And what is going to happen in the future when God renews all of creation? The eschatology in, in this book is that the present world is headed for a time when God will come in judgment and restoration, and he will raise the dead, both believers and unbelievers, and he will judge them. And after that judgment, new creation will then begin. This time in the book of John and in all of the New Testament is called the resurrection. And everyone except the Sadducees during Jesus's day believed in it. The Pharisees held to it, and Jesus does not deny their view of eschatology. Paul himself was a Pharisee, and he did not deny it either. Now, if one were expecting Let's say you're living in the first century and you were expecting to one day inhabit the resurrection and be among those who would receive favorable judgment on that day. One would say, you are going to have life. You have life. You have eternal life. If you are in the present time expecting to be in the resurrection, you would use this term life to describe your presence in the resurrection at the end when God raises the dead. That is, to participate in the resurrection is to have life. Or as it is expanded elsewhere in the book of John, eternal life. The phrase eternal life is translating a phrase that literally means life of the age. And this means the life of the age to come or the life of the resurrection. Now the claim here and over and over again, is that Jesus has life. In him was life, it says. And he has it in himself, and he can dispense it to whomever he wishes or whoever believes in him. To put it another way, as John himself will do in John chapter 6, as we've read many times in our discussion of the Lord's Supper, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood, he says, has life in him. And what does he always add? And I will raise him up at the last day. This is the association. This is the association we should all connect with the term life. If you are participating in the Messiah, you believe in the Messiah, you have life. But what that means is not just that you're going to live forever. Yes, it means that. But it means that you will have the resurrection. You will be among those who, whom God raises and you go into the new creation. That's what he means. Do you hear these connections? These are very important. Speaking of allusions to scripture, can you think of something else, specifically in the first three chapters of the Bible, that has life, uses that terminology, or the eating of which gives life? Tree of life. Tree of life. You watch, you watch throughout this gospel at the way that John portrays Jesus. He will have him at the end between two thieves, and he's in the midst of them. Where's the tree of life? He's in the midst of it's in the midst of the garden. And right there at the end of John, he is crucified. And what is there right beside where he's crucified? Well, there's a garden there. And when he's raised from the dead, he's buried in a tomb that's in a garden. So there's lots of this, this garden imagery, but what he's getting at in particular is Jesus is the one from whom you can eat to gain 
entrance into the age to come, the tree of life. He is the tree of life. Our verses say that Jesus has life in himself, and we will later learn that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have this life in us. That's what it says. Sounds cannibalistic, but what he's drawing on is this imagery of eating in order to gain life, and he's associating it with the tree of life in Genesis chapter 2. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, of men. Jesus is being portrayed as the tree of life, access to which mankind lost in Adam. He has come to restore access to life. We could take this in many directions. Specifically, we could look at how it relates to temple, uh, and hopefully we can return to that in John. But for now, it's important to see what John is saying about Jesus. The life that he has was the light that was intended for mankind. So he's made a shift here. He goes from life to light. The life that Jesus had was the light of mankind, he says. Having said what I've said about John 1 and Genesis 1 through 3, what does it mean that the life that Jesus had and dispenses is the light of mankind? What does it mean? That word of is often a bit vague, especially in, in passages like this, the light of mankind. Does it mean the light that mankind has, or is it the light that is intended for mankind? I think it's the latter. I think it here means that it is the light that is for mankind, because he's going to say in verse 9 that with, with Jesus' coming into the world, he gives light. He enlightens every man with his coming into the world. So what he's doing here in, in verse 4 is he's equating life with light, and then says, this light is for mankind. It's the light of mankind. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Why does he put it this way? To bring us back to his creational theme, wherein Jesus is the means of new creation. If he is one, the one who is coming to give life, and the one who is coming to give light to mankind, that is the first created thing that God does in Genesis 1. Let there be light. And this is what he's saying about Jesus. He has come to bring about new creation, the beginning of which is the creation, the giving of light to mankind. That's what he's getting at. So that's why he makes this connection between life and light. He's bringing us back. Life is an abbreviation for eternal life, which is short for the life of the age to come, or the resurrection, in which God's new creation will be put on full display. For this new creation to be put on display, God must overcome the darkness like he did in the first creation to bring daylight upon the earth. In Jesus, through whom he originally brought daylight upon a dark land, he is bringing daylight to a dark land again. And this light will drive out the darkness in the people who embrace Jesus and eventually in the whole world. This life that is available to us now within John's eschatology is a foretaste of the coming resurrection. You, me, 
all who embrace Jesus are or are to be glimpses of new creation. This is the application, really. This is really the application. It's, and really, we can't emphasize this enough. All who embrace Jesus are to be glimpses of new creation in the here and now as we feast upon the tree of life, Jesus himself. To have the tree of life, to have Jesus, is to have life. It's to have the life of the age to come, and God will raise us up at the last day. This is not so that we can sit around and be thankful and, and say, hey, we're going to heaven one day. This is so that new creation can come to this earth, and it is to come to this earth through us. Jesus himself is the new humanity, and in him we can be newly created, born again, he will say, as sons of God. Let's take a closer look for just a moment at Genesis 2 and 3. Remember how in Genesis 2, 9, God puts the tree of life in the midst of the garden, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All trees, even the tree of life, were fair game. Eat of them all, he says, but they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that they would eat of it, they would surely die. They would indeed die. But what did mankind do? And I say mankind because that's what Adam's name means, mankind. He is therefore the summing up of all of mankind in his actions. Mankind ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened as a result? Three, chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out. Notice it does not say them. It says the Lord God sent him out. Who? Adam. Ha'adam, the man. The mankind, actually. Sent him out from the Garden of Eden uh, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out Adam. Doesn't say anything about Eve. The reason it doesn't is not because it's chauvinist and and all of that. It's because Adam was the representative of all of humankind. He was mankind in a nutshell, right? If you, whatever is true of Adam, is true of you. Whatever is true of, of Adam is true of me. He was the summing up of all of mankind. So he is driven out. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, which is the, the way of exile, anybody that goes east in the Bible not good news. Not good news. Serious. You read Genesis and see who goes east. Cain goes east. God drives him out east. Adam and Eve, or Adam here, is driven out east. What's where is it? What's what's east of the land? Babylon. Babylon. Right. So if you don't want to go to Babylon in the Bible, you want to go to the land, right? And so if you're if you're driven out east, you're going into exile, and that's what happens. And so he drove out the man, and he, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. So what is it that mankind lost when, he was, when mankind, as all of us in him, when he was driven from the, when he was driven from the garden? He lost access to the tree of life. He lost life. This is, this is really kind of the goal of the whole Bible, is to give mankind life, to recreate the world, right? So 
in Genesis 1 through 3, I'm, I'm convinced that the, the author of Genesis 1 through 3, call it God if you want to, that's fine, but the human author too, right? So had in mind that when he was writing this passage about the original creation with rest at the end of it, that he was doing it in view of a new creation. He knew, he, he, he wrote it in such a way that the old creation had to be renewed in the future. Why? Because mankind lost access to the tree of life. It's all built around this idea. So that what Jesus has come to do is not simply to save you and me from our sins and from hell. What he has come to do is transform your whole life, my life, in such a way that it actually impacts the world around us and new creation goes out into the world in bits and pieces, of course, not in any way that, that uh, is often discernible, but we can see it, right? We can see it. Those who know the Lord can see that new creation, uh, or at least we ought to be able to see it, that is happening through us. That is, that is really the goal. God drives out mankind and he's, he's lost from life. He has no life. Jesus has come to restore, another way of putting it, Jesus has come to restore what was lost in Adam. And it will be accomplished, for Jesus will not fail. This is what verse 5 is about. The light in the darkness shines, and the darkness did not overcome it. He will not fail. The Son of God will not fail to bring life to mankind, and he will not fail in his new creation. We ourselves are witnesses to it today. God's program of life through Jesus. We know this is a battle. Right? We're seeing this in every in every state of the union we're seeing it in texas it's a battle about life and death that's what it is god's program of life through jesus his son will not be overcome but will drive back to darkness i can't help but think of our time of friday night fellowship it's just a an amazing time uh, uh, we were talking talking on friday night um, and talking just about how how amazing it was to to show up at a place and there are 75 80 people there and just the fellowship that it, that ensues as a result is is truly miraculous i've never seen it before i've never seen it anywhere and i think maybe the only way you could describe that is like new creation is happening uh, it's a bit of it's a bit of heaven that's come to earth and I mean, it's, it's joy, it's, it's pure joy, or at least it, it is a signpost pointing to the resurrection. And that may be the way that we, we are to think about it. What's happening in our lives or what should be happening in our lives is a signpost that points to the resurrection so that when people look at us, they, they should see this is what the life of the age to come is going to look like. Now, that's a tall order. It's a tall order for me, for you, for all of us. But I think that's I think that's the idea. That's what happens in in Jesus. We get a foretaste of it now. And this is this is really we talk about the the eschatology of John. When Jesus when Jesus arrives, we'll see this in, in John chapter ten and eleven. It won't hurt to, to mention it here initially. Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and the life." He says, I am the resurrection and the life. What in the world does he mean? So within Jewish eschatology, I've mentioned that you basically have 
in the end, God's going to raise the dead. That's called the resurrection. What Jesus is claiming is that the end has come into the present, and now he's the resurrection. He is the embodiment of the very resurrection that was intended for to, to happen at the end. It has surprised, it has come back into the beginning. And those who then believe in him get a foretaste of that. They can have life. That's what he says in John 3, 16. For everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have the life of the age to come. Zoe Aonian will have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, he says in chapter six. You will inhabit the resurrection, but you can taste of the resurrection in the present. That's what it's about. Life has begun in us as a sign of what is to come. This is the eschatology of John. Throughout John, this is what Jesus is claiming to give and what Jesus claims, what John claims that Jesus has given. Resurrection ahead of the resurrection. Life ahead of life. Light ahead of light. Of his fullness, he says, we have all received and grace upon grace. Over the next week, take time to think about this. What we've been given, what we possess in Christ, however tainted it may be by darkness and sin, the forces of death that are still attacking light and life. It's still good. And it's our calling to bear witness to that hidden glory. We have these treasures, Paul says, in clay pots. The glory, says, should be visible to those to whom God is giving life. What a way to see our own lives as embodying the very life of God's new age, his new creation in the present, in advance of the day when God will make all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. I encourage you this week to think about this and to seek to make your own lives more and more reflective of that new creation by the Spirit.